Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and World Affairs. I'm your host, Anna Levy. Today I'll be speaking with Dr. Aisha Ramachandran about her new book, World Makers, Global Imagining in Early Modern Europe, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2015. Dr. Ramachandran is an assistant professor of comparative literature at Yale University, focusing on literary criticism and cultural history in early modern Europe. World Makers combines science and technology studies, poetry, epic, and cultural history, both to question the inevitability of European imperialism and also to explore a period rich in philosophy, controversy, and inquiry that preceded it. Hi, Aisha. Thank you so much for joining us on New Books and World Affairs today. I'm really excited to talk about your new book. And uh, I want to begin, just tell me a little bit about how you came to write this book uh, and where it sits in your broader interests. Hi, Anna. Thanks so much for having me to talk about the book. Um, and I am really happy to be talking about it today. Uh, this is a book that comes out of a long-standing uh, interest, and um, it's very strands of both my own experience and my academic work. Um, it, st- it started off as a dissertation, uh, as many of these books do, but it grew into something quite different. Um, I have long been fascinated by the basic idea that the term world, which is a word we use all the time, ubiquitously, in all sorts of different ways, doesn't seem to have its own particular history. And being a scholar and a literary historian, one poised between comparative literature and historical study, I found myself noticing the use of this word in my work, which is in the 16th and 17th century, and finding a kind of anecdotal sense of it being used more and more over about a span of 200 years. And so I got interested really in just tracing how come at a time when we're talking about globalization and uh, a shrinking world and being connected transnationally and all of these sort of global languages, uh, that we don't actually talk about what the history of a term like the world might be. So the book in some ways began as an attempt to simply answer that question. Does the word world have its own history? And if so, how do we reconstruct it? Great. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because it's, it is only in the final chapters of the book that, that imperial imagination and conquest, uh, along with some of the debates over fidelity to the Bible, begin to unfold. And some of these earlier concepts that we now know have contributed to globalization or sort of show up in the rhetoric of globalization. Um, tell us a little bit about the inception period of world making and, and how you actually whittled down an inception point at all. 
and then how it actually leads to some of these later periods, which, which you just described in a bit, which I was talking to that, that I think actually anchor most people's understanding of, of the role of early modern Europe in, in a contemporary global imagining. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a great question. And I wish perhaps start by saying that there is a sort of um, somewhat polemical undercurrent in the book because it does want to push back against um, a post-18th century presentist sense of globalization as being solely an economic and political concept. Um, so we do tend very much to think about globalization as being associated with imperialism, uh, with colonization, with the kind of expansion of economic networks, and all that is certainly true. Um, but my sense, thinking in the kind of long historical um, uh, span, is that there's more to thinking about ideas of wholeness and ideas of totality than uh, the reductive economic political slant of a much modern criticism and and writing has been. Um, And so part of my interest was in trying to unpack what led to that? Was there a kind of intellectual historical moment that preceded uh, European uh, expansion in the late 17th and 18th century? And what might we learn from that at a time when we are actually in some ways um, experiencing uh, a push, a strong pushback against globalization and a critique of the kind of centralizing, totalizing mechanisms that came with it. Um, so I'm not sure that I would say that I want to put a kind of inception date on um, globalization or the use of the term world. And, and you'll notice that I, I actually don't use the term globalization very much in the book. Uh, I tend to sort of shy away from that and focus on an understanding of world, which I think carries a quite different charge than globalization, even though the two things are related. Um, So I I guess I identify a sort of rough period, which I would say runs from uh, the late 15th century into the early 16th century, when uh, the term world experiences a new kind of expansion, a new sense of uh, it being a worthwhile category. And what I mean by that is if you look at sort of late medieval emblem books and other texts that talk about the world, the world is associated very much with worldliness. It means being too immersed in the corrupt, uh, temporary, fleeting things of the world and not enough interested in the spiritual things of the next world. Um, And so to be worldly is not a good thing. Uh, It is a morally degenerate um, movement. And so I I was interested in the kind of earlier uh, moral implications of world and worldliness in European culture, and at what point that moral implication falls away. I mean, we certainly don't think of globalization as, I mean, morally problematic in the spiritual sense. It might be morally problematic in an ethical sense and other things. So... I guess what I would say is that there is this period over the sort of latter half of the 15th century and the first part of the 16th century when uh, two things collide in Europe. One is a powerful rethinking of the place of religion, of course, with the Reformation. Um, And, of course, uh, the discovery of the New World, along with several other kind of conjunctions. Um, And this together, I think, brings about a questioning of this moral depreciation of the term world and a new excitement of the possibilities afforded by an expanding world. And those two things, a kind of religious questioning, but then also this new excitement of new knowledge, leads to a different kind of 
trajectory within European thought first and following that in political and economic action. So so my book um, moves from a much earlier period than most people talk about, um, the sort of late 15th, early 16th century moment, when we think of globalization and imperialism as really taking off in a serious way um, in the sort of late 17th into 18th century. The big difference, of course, is the Spanish Empire, which is in full, and Portuguese empires, for which the 16th century is very important. But there again, uh, the long story of imperialism and the long story of globalization is one that's really important much later. So I'm partly trying to recover the sort of the philosophical, intellectual, and sort of cultural impact of a shifting sense of the term world, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It's it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I tried for a while to kind of distill each chapter down to uh, some of the main ideas that, that you pull out of them. And I'm, I'm, of course, going to be oversimplifying from what you would describe. But just to set it up, chapter one uh, goes through cartography and theology. Chapter two, cosmography and mythology. Chapter three is when, again, sort of we begin to hear more about nationalism, imperialism, but also astronomy and science in more sort of the formal uh, ways that, that we describe them now across the sciences. Um, mm-hmm. a, a somewhat similar question uh, where, you know, coming out of quotes that, that sort of pepper the whole book, but one which I really liked in the first chapter uh, where you say composing the atlas was an effort to archive the theological and the metaphysical. Um, it seems that there's another story that you're telling through these chapters, um, and it's how the story of religion and science, uh, and, and maybe sort of on, a, on another plane physics and metaphysics, um, not only become separate disciplines, but really incompatible uh, working concepts in terms of informing any body of knowledge or practice. Um, can you, can you talk a little bit about this? You know, if I, if I have it right, and if I don't, how, how do these two things work together in, in your book and, and over this period of time? Um, you're certainly right that one of the big strands of the book is the is the what I would call kind of interaction between religion and science, or as you put it, of physics and metaphysics more more appropriately for the period. Um, I don't think that the story I finally want to tell is one of radical disconnection. Actually, I think that the story that I try to tell is how much each of the figures that I talk about uh, are invested in keeping those two things together, even though they seem to be increasingly incommensurate. So part of the book is a story of how there is a recognition that there is a serious and deep conflict that arises around these two sort of large um, um, disciplines or areas of thought. And the quest too to work to bring them together and i think that that dialectic the sense of their difference but also the kind of investment in wanting to keep them viable and um commensurate is one that is still with us today um and i think in the period i would say there 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 are a few things um I would set out. One is, I just say, I mean, one of the things, one of the reasons why I start the book with cartography is that um, cartography is often left out of accounts of the scientific revolution. Uh, we tend to think of the scientific revolution as, you know, the rise of physics, uh, of a new chemistry, of the microscope. Um, we don't tend to assimilate things like navigation um, and the building of new ships, for instance, with the scientific revolution. But in fact, the really the first instance of a coming scientific revolution 
revolution is in what is the so-called cartographic revolution that happens about 100 years before. Um, and that's in part because the mathematics necessary to make the new maps, um, the, the sort of physical uh, and mathematical knowledge required for long-distance navigation um, become the building blocks later of what will be the, the so-called scientific revolution, which builds very much on this kind of newer knowledge. So, so I start the book really by thinking about this earlier moment, a kind of pre-scientific revolution moment, where cartographers who were scientists um, were deeply aware in some ways earlier and more sharply of how their depiction of the world in particular, which involved basically taking on a God's eye view and trying to represent it, uh, was itself at its core uh, a deeply theologically problematic um, enterprise, right? Because it essentially meant a human person was putting themselves in the place of God and showing what the world was. Um, and I'm less interested in some ways in the mechanics of how they did that. And so the chapter, as you know, does not actually go into exactly how maps were made or the kind of technical details of, of the shifts in navigation and map making. But I am interested in trying to recover what I call this kind of metaphysical sense of what happens when human beings can, for the first time, literally see the world on the page. What does that mean if you think that the only person who can do that is God who made the world? Right. Uh, it's a very fundamental challenge there to creationism. Uh, it's a fundamental challenge to thinking about what is licit knowledge, what can human beings know, what are the limits of human knowing. And it challenges in a powerful way the boundaries between what is considered to be divine and what is possible to an aspiration. So I would look at this kind of early clash of science and religion, not so much in the granular debates about, you know, whether how the earth was made or, you know, uh, whether the great flood happened or not, but in this kind of earlier and I think much deeper and more profound question of whether there was a prior divine making. And if so, how is it possible for us to know as much? And does that in some ways make us God? Right. And so I think that there is what I would call a kind of God complex um, in uh, the, these early renovations in science that, again, we see again in the 17th century in the scientific revolution. And once again, is with us today in debates about bioethics and debates about the how much science should expand to take on so-called divine uh, powers. Uh, so it's that question, though, which is, I think, an ethical question. Uh, I think it's a metaphysical question, really, um, about what, how much can human beings know and do, and how much should they know and do, uh, that I think the book charts. And so the reconciliation, such as it is, or the impossibility, impossibility of it between science and religion, um, hinges to a great extent on how one answers the question about human the, uh, limits and uh, human aspiration, right? If you think that human beings can do everything that is supposedly divine, uh, then you have a particular view about religion. If you think that human beings have limits and should have limits and there are some things we can never know, you have a very different view of religion. Um, so I try to tease out um, the ways in which many of these thinkers try on various positions. It's not as though, I mean, I try to kind of emphasize that there is no easy reductive um, answer to this. It's not as though it's incompatible or compatible. It's that people try to think through um, what's at stake in arguing about these questions of compatibility. And it seems like you bring a lot of these um, ideas or different efforts uh, together by, by talking about world making as a quest to capture the invisible whole. Um, and mm -hmm. in doing so, you 
you invoke some some pretty incredible metaphors, and you describe some really interesting practices, which which convey uh, you know attempts basically at organizing or or revealing this invisible whole. Two in particular, I really liked, um, and I wonder if you could talk a lot a bit a little bit about along with some others. One is cartographic anatomy. Uh, another is cosmographic politics. These are two words that you really would not, you just wouldn't find them paired together. Um, I, I want to say at all in, in contemporary sort of <laughs> writing, going back to, to our discussion before. So can you talk a little bit more about the idea of the invisible whole? Um, and some of the, the technical philosophical efforts at organizing it um, and how the concept itself changed over time. That's a, that's a great and very big question. Uh, and, but let me start by saying, I'm, 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 thank you for putting the accent on what I think in some ways was the hardest part of writing this book for me. Because if you start to write a book about the history of the idea of the world, it's impossible to know where to start, really. Um, and one tends to start, you know, as, as we discussed from contemporary accounts of, of globalization and sort of pushing backwards, you find yourself going in a thousand different directions. Um, but what ultimately I found was most um, interesting to me and uh, a way to hold together a lot of these disparate manifestations of this term and the ways in which it was thought about is um, that world finally signals a concept of the whole and the concept of totality, right? World, however we use that term in whatever context, means everything somehow. Um, and the, the challenging thing philosophically about an idea of everything is that it's precisely something that is intangible, right? I mean, it includes us in it too as a part. Um, so I was interested in this sort of philosophical paradox of imagining a concept of totality, which by definition means that you sort of cannot grasp it because you are not total, right? Um, and so this creates a really interesting challenge for what I call world making, the, the moment at which Europeans begin to think about, well, how do we imagine um, a very um, a concept of totality that encompasses all aspects of our existence and aspects of our and other aspects of existence that are not ours, right? Um, that we can barely begin to discern, like, you know, the moons of Jupiter, for instance. Um, and so this, this sense of world necessarily encompasses what you know, but also potentially what you don't know, right? Yourself, but also what is bigger than you. Uh, and so in that sense, it's a very old philosophical problem. I mean, another way to put it is the problem of universals and particulars. Um, philosophers typically will either talk about universals or talk about particulars and talk about how they're related. Um, but I was interested in how that problem manifests, manifests itself culturally uh, in, in a number of different ways when it is um, local on a term like world. So, so to come to your question about these sort of paradoxical metaphors like cartographical anatomy or cosmographic politics, um, it's an attempt to signal this dialectic between, you know, what is uh, singular and what is um, complete, what is holistic, uh, what is the particular and what is universal, this kind of movement between the very small and the very big. Because, of course, we know that concepts of everything or concepts of the very big are composed of a number of different individual singular things. And so the sort of main question in some ways of all of these chapters is how do we bring, you know, millions of small individual things into some kind of cohesive structure to form an idea of the whole, right? And so the case of cartographic anatomy is sort of really interesting. And I want to say it actually is still with us in, a, in, in, in various interesting ways. I teach a course on maps and literature, and there are a number of really interesting recent mapping projects which are about um, 
for instance, mapping the emotional landscapes or ma mapping the kind of sense of oneself in space. So these are not, you know, geographic maps in the way that we're used to looking at it on Google Maps or our GPS systems. Um, but they are maps of what I would call a kind of metaphysical sense of our existence in the world. And they go back to this very old idea of the individual human being as being the microcosm who mirrors macrocosm, right, who is both a part and a whole in and of himself. And so this ancient idea of correspondence between the microcosm, the human being, and the macrocosm or the universe, the world, uh, was powerfully reoriented in this period. So no longer was it possible to say that, you know, we astral influences on our bodies connected us to the universe. I mean, it became pretty clear that that was not really true anymore. Um, it became clear that the idea of man, the measure of all things, that the idea of the human proportion mirroring the proportions of the universe, that that was probably not true anymore either. But yet there, were, there remained this powerful sense that there was a deep connection between the individual and the cosmos, right, between the self and the world. And so the first two chapters of the book really try to tease out how we can think about that relationship between the individual self, the human being who thinks about the world, and the idea of the world itself. And so it's one man manifestation of this problem of particulars and universals, of how do we begin to think about a category of wholeness when we ourselves are just a part of that wholeness. Um, so cartographical anatomy in particular um, refers to two things. It refers to um, the ways in which cartographers borrowed anatomical language to talk about parts of the world. And my favorite example which I discovered in working on this is, you know, the brain's hemispheres uh, are called hemispheres after the new maps. Uh, it's a term coined in the late 17th century, and it's clearly drawing on uh, this long, exciting tradition of work in mapping, where the brain itself is a little world with two hemispheres, right? Um, there's a kind of a lexical link between those two things. Uh, similarly, um, the hydrography of the earth, so uh, the structure of rivers and oceans, was frequently com compared in this period to the heart. There was a lot of exper experiments, of course, on uh, the heart leading up to um, uh, the important treatise on the circulation of the blood. And so the idea of the Earth's hy hydrography, all of these water bodies circulating, was frequently compared to the heart uh, circulating uh, blood through the body. So, um, And part of this has to do with the fact that the rise of map making and the rise of dissection and anatomies happens at about the same time in Europe. Um, I mean, I sort of narrow it down roughly to the 1540s as a kind of important moment in Louvain, uh, where we really do see these two disciplines, which seem so utterly different, sort of coming uh, into being at the same time. But they're again asking very similar kinds of uh, conceptual questions, questions about how do all these parts form a whole, right? Um, what is the order of many of these tiny singular parts and how do we recompose them to understand how the whole works that fundamental question is as true for a body as it is for uh, the world and in fact the metaphor of the body of the world is one that one sees over and over again in this period so um, I think that fundamental question, the question of how do individuals, individual human beings um, relate to the world or connect to it, remains with us uh, really fundamentally in an ethical way. I mean, even questions, for instance, around, you know, what is our role in the environment, um, return to this very old idea of macrocosm and microcosm and the kind of deep connection that we have with the world through our actions, through, our, through the possibilities of ourselves. Um, and so the book, again, tries to kind of suggest that there is a longer history here um, that 
gets at some of these more contemporary kinds of dynamics as well. Um, the same is true for an idea of cosmographic politics. I mean, we think of politics sometimes as being pretty local, you know. Um, we might talk about international politics. Um, but again, that has to do with the relationships between particular nations. And what I was trying to get at is that in this period, the sense of a cosmographic politics, that what you do at home may actually have cosmographic or cosmic implications, um, has to do with this wanting to think across terms of scale, from the very little to the very big, and this sort of deep sense of interconnection, uh, which I think actually we are recovering in different terminology even in our own time now. Can you talk a little bit also about, you know, it's it's fascinating to read the book given sort of the core texts that you use to assemble each chapter and to describe sort of huge turning points in the evolution or what, what appeared to me as huge turning points in the evolution of, of this idea and these ideas. Um, for example, a, a poem, uh, a, a single poem and sort of body of poetry around it that sort of marks the era moving into the post-Columbian world. Can you talk a bit about... I don't even want to call them only texts because you describe texts at some points, bodies of work at others, and then sort of um, almost distant archives of, of images and expressions and ideas that, that work together over time. Um, can you talk a bit about those works and, and how they came to anchor uh, this trajectory, I guess? Absolutely. So very quickly, the book moves from uh, the sort of early 16th century, from about the 1540s uh, until the late 17th century, about the 1660s. And so the first chapter is on Gerhard Mercator, whom we know best for the Mercator projection, and traces um, the development over his lifetime of what would be his great life's work, uh, the, the Atlas, which is in fact the book that gives the genre of the Atlas its name. Um, the second chapter is on the French humanist Michel de Montaigne um, and his so again, his life's work, the essays, which are often considered the first great expression of autobiographical writing uh, in uh, modernity in Europe. Um, the third chapter moves to think about sort of epic and its connection to the question of empire and nation building in the works of Spencer and Camões, uh, Camões, a Portuguese epic poet who is um, uh, often described as the first to write a kind of new global epic for modernity. Uh, and Spencer, who writes what looks like a really medieval poem that imagines England's kind of imperial future. Um, then it, has, it moves to a chapter on Descartes and thinks about the rise of the new science, but particularly important um, in a work, a small work that Descartes wrote and suppressed called The World, um, a work that would have been heretic, heretical had it been published, and he suppressed it after Galileo's uh, house arrest. So it juxtaposes the moment of Galileo's fall with Descartes' own sense of what was possible and not possible in his own science. And finally, I end looking at Milton's Paradise Lost as a way to think about more fully about the question religion and science that we discovered. So the arc of the book is an arc, is in some ways a case study. It's a sort of attempt to pick major representative figures and texts that speak to a range of different disciplines that allow me to elucidate um, different ways in which people thought about the concept of the world. Uh, I, I never quite imagined I would end up writing a chapter on the history of cartography, um, but it seemed inevitable and hugely important because so much of the sense of a new idea of the world is visual. 
Um, and so, so the first chapter is really a chapter about the visual image of the world and how it comes to be. And what is the sort of conceptual idea behind putting together an atlas? Because it turns out that uh, atlases actually didn't exist before. And there is a lot of conceptual work that goes into thinking about how an atlas should be composed. And the idea of thinking about how an atlas should be composed is also um, mirrors the pro process of thinking about how the world is composed. And so the relationship between representation and understanding there is really powerful. So I found myself writing about Mercator in part because he's so he's such a legible figure for for really imperial conquest. I mean, the Mercator projection uh, has been vilified um, and become an emblem for the worst excesses of European expansionism. Uh, on the other hand, I was interested in recovering the story of Mercator himself, who was deeply suspicious of that uh, and spent a lot of time. I mean, he was almost um, killed for heresy in the 1540s and narrowly escaped with his life and who thought very much about conflict and saw the mapping of the world as being part of a project of overcoming individual confessional differences and individual politics to understand better a global unity. Um, so already in the inception of this idea of the world as a visual concept, you see these um, tensions that, that are still with us today. The question of, you know, is individual politics and conquest more important? And is that what the world is about? Or does the world signal this greater idea of unity and harmony? Um, when in, with, with Montaigne, uh, I was interested in teasing out, as I said before, this question of how does the individual human being connect to this wider idea of the world? And one of the things that makes Montaigne's essays so stunning as a piece of work even today um, is precisely that he speaks about this, the exploration of the self using the same language that was used to talk about the exploration of the world. So in a sense, what Montaigne is doing is using his moment of excitement about global expansion to turn the gaze inward and to sort of treat the self as a little world on its own. Uh, and that's language we'll hear again and again as well. So it became a nice way to think about this doubling of global expansion and a kind of internal self-reflection uh, um, that is so central again to the dynamics of part and whole. Um, and again, I really wanted to confront the question of the world and globalization being so deeply connected only to ideas of, of imperialism and colonization. And one of the most obvious ways to do this was to think about uh, epic poetry in this period, which is in fact often propaganda for, for um, imperialism. Um, and one of the things that I realized in working on this and working on a lot of treatises on um, imperial expansion, both in the Portuguese context and in the English context, was how even though we tend to conflate world making with a kind of uh, imperial conquest, there's actually really a more complex sliding scale between the level of the nation, the level of the empire, and the level of the world, which is very legible in this earlier period, where uh, it's very clear, for instance, that Camoens writes, well, here are all these empires competing to have a piece of the world, where he understands perfectly well that the world, in some ways, represents a higher concept that is bigger um, in, than the empire, which is bigger than the nation. And interestingly, um, historians of the early modern period, too, especially historians who work on questions of colonialism and imperialism are also 
deconstructing this kind of presentist sense that somehow the drive towards world making is automatically a drive towards imperialism and our understanding that those those, those two things can be in conflict. Um, I, I should say that I, I intended to write another chapter on the um, development of the idea of the international community in the 17th century, which is so central to our modern idea of international law. Uh, it was already The book was too long, so that didn't happen, but that would have been the counterpart of this chapter, which thinks about how um, imperialism is certainly a part of the world-making imagination, but also resists it because world-making at some level is also a push towards a kind of global unity, uh, and, and which empire resists. Um, so the chapter looks at the kind of tensions in the heart of the imperial project as well, particularly from the view of two um, poets who are both uh, uh, who both worked in their respective imperial administrations. So Camoyne, interestingly, lived most of his life in Goa, uh, was a minor colonial official. Uh, Spencer lived most of his life in Ireland, where he was a minor colonial official. So these are both poets who are writing from the outposts of their respective kind of national imperial uh, projects um, and have very ambivalent feelings about uh, what empire is already in the 16th century. So we don't really have to wait for post-colonialism to happen to get that critique, which is built into these seemingly very imperial poems. Um, and finally, the final movement of the book is really to think more fully about questions of science and questions of religion, because these are the two great kind of arenas of thought that have grappled with questions of totality and questions of the world. So, you know, one might say that the book moves from an initial two chapters that think conceptually about questions of world and self and how those two things interact to an engagement with politics, with science and with religion. So it does, I did want to programmatically engage these kind of big disciplines to get at some of the nuances of this concept world in the context of these disciplines. Moving, moving actually that very last chapter into the present, although I... I felt it very much, uh, really, really in every chapter is I thought a lot about how, you know, we live in, in the digital era, which is basically in its nascency, it's kind of just forming and just starting. There's invisible infrastructure everywhere where the rules of which, you know, are, are gen- they're written by a few, but enormous numbers of people from all over the place can contribute. They can disseminate, they can be represented in different ways. Where yeah. does this point that we're at, um, you know, with digital kind of society, uh, how does it fit? I guess does is it a departure from what you've <laughs> laid out here? Is it a continuation? Is it neither? Is it both? What a great question! Um, you know, it's funny. I spent a, a fair amount of time as I was finishing the book, sort of thinking about this because one of my one of the things I, I sense, and and I'm not sure that I can maybe in a scholarly way back this up, but. One of the trends that I noticed, and I noticed this especially thinking, for instance, about cartography, something you know, something as simple as that, um, is, in an, an odd way, a return back to this exciting moment of this that, that, that I map out in the 16th and 17th century, the sense in which the world is changing, but we don't quite know how. We know that we are more powerfully connected. We know that there are deep kind of ethical and metaphysical problems associated with it. Uh, we are skeptical of sort of older triumphalist accounts of what this might be. Um, and we are, I think, newly empowered at the possibility of what we can achieve, right? And so there is, again, I think, this sense of uh, aspiration, but the worry about what our appropriate limits should be, uh, a moment where we know we have to really rethink hard what our ethical boundaries are, um, where the old rules in some ways don't matter anymore, uh, where the rate of obsolescence is so fast. Um, 
So I see a lot of actually similarities to the moment that I write about. And so if I had to map this out in some kind of historical long, long durée, you know, I would say I think there's this moment in the 16th and 17th centuries, which is a prelude to the 18th century moment of enlightenment and empire and revolution, um, which leads to this kind of long wave of nation building from the late 18th century through the early 20th century uh, and the breakdown of a lot of empires right in that period. And, and as we know, the story of the 20th century has both been about terrible rise of totalitarianism and its breakdown, right? And so in a funny way, I think that we are actually finding ourselves back at the beginning of the cycle, um, having confronted uh, what happens when there is this kind of um, powerful propagandistic support of a universalism that does not acknowledge the more complicated nuances of the making of that universalism. So one example that I sort of end the book on, and um, which I think does tie our own, as you say, sort of digital moment, but digital in all sorts of ways. I mean, not just the, what we can do with the internet, but how that is changing our politics, how that is changing our sense of community, how it's making possible, you know, lots of things. You know, many people talk about the parallels between the invention of print in the early modern period and the rise of the internet, like, you know, Gutenberg and Google. Um, and I think that those are not uh, wrong, but I think that to emphasize only the technology and not emphasize what make what that technology makes possible, specifically, you know, new ways of communal gathering, new ways of thinking about what one's own relationship is to the world around one, um, is I think to put the accent on a symptom and not what is the more exciting question. So uh, I end the book by thinking about the rise of cosmopolitanism. And I noticed that, you know, again, in uh, accounts of cosmopolitanism, people tend to locate that in the 18th century, to locate that with expanding empires. But in fact, the word cosmopolite is a French word that's coined in 1560. And it's coined to talk not about empire, but to talk about religious difference and to talk about the need to rise above religious difference at a time when Europe is completely riven by horrific wars of religion. And so it's quite interesting to me that that term has been recuperated in the 1990s and, you know, uh, early um, 21st century to try to think about human rights regimes, try to think about how we can rise above um, national, ethnic, sort of tribal allegiance, to sort of think about a kind of larger uh, regime of human allegiance. Uh, and that again, mirrors the turn towards trying to use these ideas of the universal of the world or the human to think about something that is bigger than individual difference, right? Individual political, national, imperial difference. Um, and that move is a move that you really lexically have a parallel in the 16th century. So this is a long way of saying that I think that there are a lot of interesting parallels to our, to the kind of psychology and sort of metaphysics of our exciting digital moment and this kind of earlier moment of expansion and um, innovation as well. We just don't know where it's going to go. And I guess, you know, my when I think about this, I think a lot about sort of the ethical questions and how important it is to think about them uh, with attention and not just get um, sidetracked by excitement about technology and, you know, the possibility of it. One thing I want to ask you, which which does come up, I mean, uh, it, to the last two questions, you know, you talked about the overemphasis on on the imperial moment as kind of uh, 
getting a bit too much uh, credit, but also distracting people from some of the longer discussions and the actual context in which much much of this was taking place and then bringing it, you know, into the digital age where it's true, you know, we are basically confronted with all sorts of new frontiers um, that just haven't, haven't, haven't been available to us and haven't also sort of been so much larger than us in a very long time. I want to ask you when you found yourself uh, making decisions about what to leave out, you could have gone in so many different directions and, but specifically related to what actually doesn't make it into the lexicon of, uh, you know, whether it's what we call globalization or ideas about the world. There's one particular part, I think it's at the end of chapter one or two, where you kind of outline in a really vivid way the competing Aztec and European cosmologies. Uh, yes. And then you also go into, you know, a process, whether intentional or unintentional, of isolation and then erasure. And mm-hmm. and it really made me wonder, you know, about this, this dialogue between center and periphery, both as a real thing and also as how we kind of what makes it, you know, in, into the future and how is it actually taught and how is that represented in maps beyond, you know, the, the, the totalization from a European perspective of the world. Where were some of those peripheries, fault lines, whatever you'd like to call them? Yeah, it's a great, I mean, it's a, again, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. I, I want to emphasize that I, I don't mean to downplay the long-term historical significance of empires and certainly European empires. I mean, the impact of that is, is you know, incontestable and horrific in most cases. Um, and that begins with the terrible genocides in the Americas going back to the early 16th century. So I don't mean to downplay that at all. Um, um, what I am trying to do is to emphasize uh, many of the other currents of thinking that were uh, also so part of the conversation at this period historically in Europe. Um, so we are really, Europe is still pre-imperial in the 16th and 17th centuries. It's not until later that it's, um, it becomes what we now associate with the kind of, of you know, imperial hegemonies. Um, in, I mean, the Spanish case is more complicated for all sorts of reasons that I won't get into. But I will say that, um, to go back to your question, that what gets left out and what makes it in? Um, some of that, as I argue in the book, is contingent, um, which is to say that there's no way to predict who's going to be a winner and who's going to be a loser. I mean, in the Spanish case, for instance, we now know because of a lot of historical work about the incredible complicity between um, many of the sort of war kingdoms in Central and what is now Central America and their collusions uh, with the very small group of uh, Spanish invaders who had come. Uh, and so that there is the story is much more nuanced and complicated than simply, you know, Europeans coming in and being so strong and brave and like killing off all the native peoples that that's, you know, that, that Europeans may have simply lucked out. I mean, they were not necessarily on the winning side of history, so to speak. Um, and so I think that that sense of historical contingency that, um, you know, there isn't an easy way to predict who's going to win and who's going to lose, I think is part of what I want to get at in the book. I think there've been too many sort of triumphalist accounts that sort of want to argue, well, you know, I mean, the West triumphed over the rest because of these reasons. And and I'm not sure that there are specific reasons. I mean, one can certainly, you know, argue for technological superiority, et cetera, et cetera. But when one goes back, really, and looks in a granular way at what happened in these encounters, you realize that, you know, many of them could have gone in a quite different direction. 
um, and it's not really clear why. And so I think that there's, while we might search for explanation, it's not always clear to pin, pin those down. And many of the accounts that I focus on that are contemporary, that are 16th and 17th century writing about people thinking about and reflecting about their own moment, reflects that sense of contingency, that sense that we we really cannot know what is going to be, um, what is going to make it into the future. Many of these writers, and Montaigne um, is one of the writers who particular, who's particularly good at doing this. And the essay that you, the moment that you point to is in his essay um, called, oddly enough, On Coaches, which is about travel and discovery, um, which ends with this horrible indictment of just how awful the Spaniards have been in the new world. And part of what he points to is the sense that um, we need to value what has been lost because we too could have lost that and will lose that in the future, right? There's this terrible sense of mirroring that just because I has this great image of, you know, worlds, like one world rises and one world falls as one grows to old age, one is born. Um, And that sense of sort of cycle and mirroring, which is very much become sort of entrenched in some ways in the period and is a rhetoric we don't hear. And that's the rhetoric of Europeans recognizing that uh, they, they will have a certain kind of comeuppance, that this is not, uh, these are not victories that are, you know, bought without a kind of um, um, loss, uh, even if it is long-term loss that they may not see in their own lifetimes. Um, so um, this is not really to say, to explain what I think will make it into the future. Um, I do think that um, even though there are erasures of entire cultures and peoples uh, in uh, at work in this period, which is a prelude to even worse erasures and subjections, um, and while it is certainly true that Europeans wrote their own narrative of a rise to power, part of what my book wants to do, like many other academic projects recently, is to put pressure on that triumphalist narrative and to point out just how not triumphalist it was when it was being made, that in some ways our sense of it being a kind of narrative of triumphalist rise is a post-facto narrative, that if you go back and really look at what people are thinking about and writing about in the moment, they are quite conflicted about what is going on, just in the same way as which I would say we are conflicted right now about our own exciting moment, right? Um, And the final thing I'd say on that is that um, I think that people... Um, much as there were many erasures, much of what we actually have that remains uh, of our knowledge of a lot of these uh, indigenous cultures, for instance, which were erased, has to do because they were preserved by oddball Europeans who felt that they had to preserve things. You know, that there is a kind of parallel story to be written, not of not just of European erasures, but of European preservations. Um, And I don't say this in some ways to, uh, I don't say this at all to elevate Europe in this, but to say that these stories of encounter are always deeply, deeply complicated. And it's difficult to assign praise and blame in a reductive way, even though we would want to do that for various political reasons. And so just as, for instance, there were were many complicit Mystec and Aztec uh, um, people who led to the downfall of their own civilization. Um, There were many others who protected, preserved, and sought to keep going uh, many of those things. And that's true. That story is true on both sides. And so um, I'm really interested in the book in trying to offer a more nuanced view of some of these encounters without trying to flatten them out and to suggest that, you know, one person winner and one was a loser. So to sort of acknowledge that that these shifts come with tremendous loss um, on a personal, cultural, uh, political scale, um, but 
we have to honor those losses, but also kind of think about how complicated those moments are and how we don't always make very clear choices about what is going to make it into the future. Very, very telling also, you know, how what you just described um, is sort of capped in the epilogue where you present a final series of, of images and one that is very powerful in particular, which is basically it's a, a court jester or a clown uh, and the face of it is is a globe. Um, and you write, the integration of fool and world is a final fitting emblem for the world makers. Um, so why is this an appropriate closing for, for this text? Um, I would I strongly recommend people who haven't seen this image which uh, to go look at it because it does have it has the, a world map and piece of the face of this of this court gesture and part of the reason why I think it's fitting is because it comes back to this complete sort of enmeshed relationship between human beings and their idea of the world so in, in a sense our idea of the concept world is a made-up concept I and mean, we need it to think so that we have this idea of totality and we produce this idea of totality of which we are a part um, because we needed to provide a kind of structure and order for us to do all sorts of things, political things, ethical things, you know, commerce and so on and so forth. Um, and so I like that image because it brings us back. It's a reminder that this idea of the world and the world, the great big wide world is not something that is alien divorced and bigger from us that we have no control over and that we are disempowered in face of. Um, that in fact, it ultimately emerges from us um, and that we have control over it. Um, and so I'm really interested in this dialectic, really, finally, of individual human beings and this notion of the world that they produce individually and collectively. Um, and I think often in writing about globalization, for instance, um, and these kind of large-scale global processes, uh, we tend to think of them as being so much bigger than the individual person and something that are kind of a juggernaut we cannot stop that's divorced from us that it's just bigger than us um and it's to me this image is a reminder that while all those things might be true institutionally and in terms of large-scale infrastructure you know on a global scale uh the individual human being right as a person as a thinker uh has also constructed that. And that means that there is room in the future for us to deconstruct and rethink that too. So I see that image as finally an image of real power and an image of real hope. Uh, it's a reminder that, you know, if we have created concepts that have turned out, turned out to not do very good work for us and create a mess as Empire, for instance, certainly did. Um, we can also unthink and rethink and redo those because there remains a kind of powerful human control over those concepts. And so part of what I think is at stake in the book is a reminder that we need to think about history not just as being institutional um, and about these sort of impersonal macro uh, processes, but also as coming out of particular ways of thinking and shaping how we see the world around us. And that those ultimately might be more powerful in the long term than extant um, infrastructure or um, administrations or institutions. Um, so in a certain way, I mean, this is sort of very much in line with people who are interested in ideas of revolution, right? I mean, we just got to think it differently and it will happen. Uh, and I'm not sure that I'm sort of simplistically saying, I mean, I'm not simplistically saying, well, if we 
think it differently, it would be different. But I am saying that if we don't think it differently, it's never going to come to be different. So we have to begin by understanding that our own thought and our own um, understanding of the power of our thinking does transform in very material ways the world around us. And if we are not able to imagine big and we're not able to acknowledge the importance of that imagination in thinking big, uh, we're never actually going to be able to make pragmatic changes. So the book finally oscillates between those two extremes, the kind of speculative imaginative impulse that makes it possible to think about an idea of totality bigger than yourself, but also then the kind of material ways in which that ramifies back into various disciplines. So in that sense, the image of the fool and the world is an image about the power of human thinking and what it can produce, but also I think a reminder that we shouldn't be too seduced uh, by the kind of triumphalist narratives that come from being able to imagine something big like the world, that that finally might also just be a foolish dream, um, which is was very much a kind of reminder that was resonant in the minds of um, 16th and 17th century thinkers. Thank you so much, um, really, for talking about this, for writing the book. It, it certainly is a reminder of how exciting and real paradoxes are. You know, it's something that I think in, in this day and age in, in 2016, where we feel both very powerful and very helpless, um, you, you sort of unpick and unpack a lot of these tensions and also kind of name them as narratives, as mythologies, you know, founding mythologies. I had never really thought about maps as having founding mythologies or at, or at least knowing what they were. So I really appreciate, uh, you know, that you kind of sparked this conversation. I know it's been <laughs> one that's been ongoing for a long time. Um, and, and before, before we, we close up, I, I just want to ask, what are you working on now? What, what comes next? Uh, thank you. And thank you again for the really thoughtful questions. I have to say that I've talked about the book in so many different ways and I'm more talk about you know particular details and so it's actually really nice to have a chance to talk about what I think are the more um, sort of the more profound conceptual stakes um, of writing that book I mean in some ways one could write this book with a whole different cast of characters and come out with in, in the same place and so it was nice to be able to get at some of those questions um, in terms of new projects I'm actually working on a second book right now which is um, um, which I thought was going to be different, but is actually turning out to have continuities with the first book. Uh, it's a project on epic and lyric poetry in the 16th century. So I'm interested in poets who wrote both these long epic poems, which tend towards, you know, the universal and the communal and the public and towards nation building and empire, and who also wrote love lyrics um, or um, philosophical poems or these lyric poems that are tend to be deeply personal and um, uh, private, individual, marginal. And so, as you can see, there's a kind of similar dialectic in this book between thinking about the big and the small and the relationship between them. Uh, and I'm particularly interested in this project with what I'm calling the poetics of thought. So the way in which thinking, uh, the sort of um, representation of how we think about things becomes a legitimate subject for poetry, um, even though we often think of there being a fundamental cleavage between philosophy and poetry. So, so that's sort of exciting. So I'm coming back to work that I started doing a long time ago and didn't quite really get into. And, and in a funny way, I'm coming back to it, having worked on more historical topics. And it's interesting to come back and see similar continuities and looking at something more discreetly literary and poetic um, book. 
And I'm also looking ahead to learning Persian. Um, I was lucky enough to be awarded a Mellon New Directions Fellowship recently, which basically means that I will be able to stop being a professor for a year and go back to school um, and cross-train in a different field. So I'm hoping to learn Persian and um, study the history of the Persianate Empire, so mostly the Safavid Empire in the early modern period, but to work across the sort of so-called Indo-Islamic world, so the Safavid and Mughal empires. Um, and so that'll allow me to really do genuinely comparative work beyond Europe. Um, I myself am South Asian, and so it's uh, really exciting to be thinking about some of the questions I ask in my first book and to be able to go back to them and respond to them, not just from the perspective of a Europeanist, but from somebody who can also work outside of Europe. Uh, many of the questions I've gotten about the book are, well, this is great that it's Europeanist, but, you know, what's the story outside of Europe? And I hope that, you know, in my sort of next project that I'm going to be able to begin to answer some of those questions about, you know, what about beyond Europe? So well, I look forward to talking to you then again. <laughs> Thanks, Anna. <laughs> Thank you so much, Aisha. Questions. <laughs>